It's Valentine's Day. It's about 10.30 in the morning. Four men walk into a garage, two of them donning police uniforms. Moments later, the sound of gunfire rings out as a hail of bullets are unleashed, and seven men are shot to death. That's right, folks, we're talking about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929. Welcome to Feebles Agreed Upon, a historical true crime podcast. I'm your host, Danny, And I'm your co-host, Quentin. And hey, happy Valentine's Day! So this week, yes, we've gone weekly now, this week we're going to be taking y'all on a tour of the seedy underbelly of Chicago in the 1920s. We're talking bootlegging, we're talking speakeasies, we're talking Al Capone, and I am friggin' jazzed. (laughs) Obviously we're not going to glorify the mafia, but damn if I don't want to smoke a cigar and put on a pinstripe suit. Maybe it's because I'm Italian. It's because you're Italian. (laughs) Maybe it's the distant mafia ancestry, but I'm kind of geeking out right now. I think it's cool in theory, like what classy villains they were, but in actuality, not a huge fan of murder, obviously. Anyway, before we can get into the massacre, we have to back up a bit. January 16th, 1919, the 18th Amendment passes, and it goes into effect January 17, 1920, paired with the Volstead Act that passed in October 1919, and all of this basically makes prohibition a thing and makes it an enforceable thing. Practically overnight, organized crime flourishes. Bootlegging and speakeasies provide an extra income for gangs, and it pairs nicely with their other prominent rackets, gambling and prostitution. By 1924, two dominant cartels have emerged in Chicago, the others being folded into the larger gangs, forming alliances with them, or being straight up eliminated in gang warfare. There's the Southside Gang, headed up by none other than Al Capone. It used to be run by Johnny Torrio, but after being severely wounded in an assassination attempt, he moves to Brooklyn and semi-retires, leaving the gang under Capone's control. And then there's the Northside Gang. Originally, the gang was headed by Dean O'Bannon, but due to a series of murders and whatnot, it changes hands a few times, and by 1929, the gang is controlled by George Bugs Moran. Meanwhile, the North and South Side gangs have been at near-constant war, and the estimates of the death toll vary from, according to primary sources at the time, literally 38 to over 500. Which is a huge margin, right? But either way, it was chaotic with regular shootings, occasional kidnappings, and even semi-frequent bombings. Suffice it to say, Chicago is not having a great time right now. And then Bugs Moran gets bolder. The Northside Gang starts hijacking the Southside Gang's illegally imported Canadian booze deliveries in Cook County, Illinois. This, of course, enrages Al Capone. Also, Peter Gusenberg and Frank Gusenberg, brothers not married, who are the Northside Gang's enforcers, tried to kill Jack McGurn, who was affiliated with the Southside Gang, 
So obviously, the South Side is pretty pissed off. Then, on Valentine's Day, five members of the North Side gang meet in a garage at 2122 North Clark Street in the Lincoln Park neighborhood on Chicago's North Side, along with two other men, to go over some bootlegging business. There's Frank and Pete, the enforcers, and Albert Kachalek, Bugs' second-in-command and brother-in-law, who also went by the alias James Clark. And there's Adam Heyer, the gang's bookkeeper and business manager, and Albert Weinshank, who manages... <laughs> His last name is Shank in it. And Albert Weinshank, who manages some cleaning and dyeing operations for the gang. There's also those two men who weren't technically in the gang, an optometrist and gambler named Reinhardt H. Schwimmer, who wasn't technically in the gang but hung around with them a lot, and John May, a mechanic who did some occasional work for them and was likely just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Bugs Moran is also on his way, but a few minutes before he gets there, four unknown men enter the building, two of them wearing police uniforms and two of them wearing suits, and all of them carrying guns, two Thompson submachine guns and two rifles or shotguns. The men in uniform tell everyone to line up and face the wall. The gangsters and the other two, probably assuming this was just a raid and the gang lawyers would have them out in a few hours, comply. Then the four men open fire, spraying anywhere from 70 to 100 bullets, and within minutes, six of the seven men are dead. Frank Gusenberg is actually hanging on by a thread, but we'll circle back to that in a minute. Witnesses, alarmed by the gunfire, look out to see two men dressed as cops marching the two men in suits out of the building at gunpoint and load them into the back of a car that's decked out like a police cruiser, and while they're walking out, their hands are up like they're being arrested. So witnesses don't call the police right away because, in their mind, police were already here and they've handled it, which is actually kind of brilliant. Anyway, at some point the police are notified, and when they get there, Frank Gusenberg is still alive. By some accounts, he dies at the scene, and by others, he's taken to the hospital and survives for several hours, but when interviewed by police, he tells them, quote, no one shot me. By all accounts, though, he refuses to tell police anything, and then he dies. We love someone who's not a snitch. I mean, but he wouldn't be snitching on his own gang, you know? That's fair, I guess. I'm not telling the cops anything anyway, so, like, I support him. Yeah, and Chicago at this point... The police department was just, like, notoriously corrupt, so I don't know that I'd be cooperating. No to Chicago, I'm pretty sure it still is. I mean, I wasn't gonna go there, but y yeah. So while this was mob violence with no, like, direct effect on the citizens of Chicago, and this type of violence was hardly uncommon at the time, this one really shook the public. On February 24th, a newspaper reported... The circumstances of the crime caused a general revulsion of feeling. The number of victims, the fact that they had been butchered while they stood with hands up facing a wall, and the circumstances that the murderers arrived in a police squad car, and that two of them wore police uniforms, all of these details seemed a little insolent. Why are they so shaken up by this? At this point, didn't they still have death by firing squad? It's practically the same thing. I am not sure when that ended. But even still, that was, you know, after you had been convicted and everything. This wasn't something that was just happening on the streets regularly. And it's not like there wasn't a ton of, like, mob gang violence, whatever, going on at the time. Because, um, like I said, estimates are anywhere from 38 to over 500. But this was the single bloodiest incident in the history of gang violence in Chicago up to that point. Um, you know, you would have, like, one or two people murdered at a time. But this was, like, a lot at once, comparatively. There would go on to actually be 64 gang-related murders in Chicago that year alone. So the murders themselves weren't uncommon, but just 
the intense violence of it, the fact that it was so many people in one single hit, and the fact that it happened in broad daylight while they were dressed as police, no less, was just kind of a lot for the public to handle. Anyway, when asked by newspapers, Bugs Moran tells them, the only man who kills like that is Capone. To which Capone publicly responds, the only man who kills like that is Moran. Which is just the gangster version of, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> but Capone does have a pretty solid alibi. He was in Miami, Florida at the time. But there's obviously speculation that he ordered the hit, and this has basically eliminated the last bit of substantial competition he had in Chicago, and the men missed Moran by just a few minutes, so he may have been the actual target. It would make sense if Capone had ordered a hit on the head of the rival gang, you know? Especially because, supposedly, Moran had already taken out a few hits on Capone, they just hadn't been successful yet. Capone never actually goes down for this, but pretty soon he does go down for contempt of court, tax fraud, and some weapons charges, and then he's released from prison in 1939, dies in Florida in 1947. He never gets in trouble for this officially, and he kind of dies in obscurity. He dies because he has syphilis. Yeah, but before that, he kind of, you know, loses all of his rank and just kind of... Nobody really cares about Capone the old man. They care about Capone the young gangster. They don't care about him as an old man because he kind of loses it. Because of the syphilis. Yeah, but what I'm saying is he never gets in trouble for this officially, but he doesn't exactly get a happy ending either. And of course, we know he wasn't actually there, right? He was in Miami, Florida. So who was there? As it turns out, potentially a lot of folks. So we're just gonna sort of follow along with like the chronological order of the police investigation, but we'll also jump around just a little bit to wrap up every suspect's stories. So first and foremost, police very quickly rule out robbery as a motive. Peter Gusenberg had a large diamond ring and $447 in cash. Albert Weinshank had $18 and a diamond ring. Albert Kachalek had $68. The mechanic, John May, had only a few dollars and two medals of St. Christopher, which had been damaged by bullets. But like I said, he probably wasn't a target, just sort of a wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't really like a high-rolling gangster like the rest of them. But anyway, because all of these people still had their cash, they're pretty certain it wasn't a robbery. So, the investigation initially focuses on the Purple Gang, a predominantly Jewish gang in Detroit. They were temporarily rooming in Chicago, across the street from the Clark Street Garage. They moved in literally 10 days before the massacre with landladies Mrs. Duty and Mrs. Orbitson. <laughs> Duty. <laughs> did you expect anything else from me? Yes, I did. I... But also, they, they should have come up with a better name than Purple Gang. I... So they're, they're one of the sort of, like, smaller gangs. They were, like, a group of Jewish people, like, Jewish dudes who grew up together... And then they decided they were a gang, and then they named themselves the Purple Gang. The gang names are fairly creative. Like, you'll see one later, it's called Egan's Rats. And that's in St. Louis. Um, I think it's a fine name. I mean, like, are they a gang because they're just some bros hanging out, or are they a gang because they're doing crime? Because if you're doing crime, come up with a better name than Purple Gang. They started. So the gang sounds like a Powerpuff Girls like evil villain group. The it gang Green Gang. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Um, 
They were essentially like a group of dudes who grew up together who were just hanging out, but also like, you know, doing little hooligan crimes. And then they kind of grew up into be like an actual gang. And then they wind up allying with Capone because you were either with Capone or against Capone at that point. But anyway, they moved in 10 days before the massacre, and then the landladies later picked out mugshots of George Lewis, Eddie Fletcher, Phil Keywell, and Harry Keywell, who were all members of the Purple Gang. But then they recanted. And no one knows if it was a case of witness tampering and, like, intimidation, or if it was truly mistaken identity, or just police pressuring to them to make the ID and then them feeling bad about it later. Either way, the police questioned the men, but they were eventually cleared as suspects. And it does strike me as a little bit odd, well, not odd, and honestly not surprising, but a little bit upsetting that the first place they go is this Jewish gang from a completely different town. Yeah. Like they didn't even start with a Chicago gang. Anyway, on February 22nd, the police found a 1927 Cadillac sedan that was partially disassembled and partially burned in a garage on Wood Street, and they believed it to be the one used by the murderers, because it was also sort of decked out like a police car. They traced the engine number to a dealer on Michigan Ave, who sold it to a James Morton, who didn't exist. Um, And then the garage was rented by a Frank Rogers, who also didn't exist, but the man claiming to be Frank Rogers had given his address as 1859 West North Avenue, which wasn't a residence, but rather the Circus Cafe, which was operated by Claude Maddox, a retired gangster from St. Louis, who was associated with Capone, the Purple Gang, and a St. Louis gang known as Egan's Rats. Claude Maddox is a good name. But not a good person. No, but that's a, that's a cool name. It's, it's pretty solid, I'll give you that. So that kind of leads to a dead end. You know, they know it does tie back to Capone eventually, but they can't say whose garage it actually was because they rented it under a fake name. But then another witness comes forward with a break in the case. A truck driver named Elmer Lewis. He says he was driving in the area that morning, and he clipped a police car. He stopped immediately, but the driver, who was wearing a police uniform, waved him off. Lewis mentioned that the driver was missing one of his front teeth. H. Wallace Caldwell, a president of the local board of education, also witnessed the accident and confirms the description. This sounds suspiciously like Fred Burke, a former member of the Egan's Rats gang in St. Louis with ties to Capone, and a reputation for wearing a police uniform when going on crime speeds with his friend James Ray. There's more evidence for this, but we'll actually circle back to that in a minute. So police basically ignore that, I guess? Police announce that they're looking for John Scalise and Albert Anselmi, two gunmen known to work with Capone, and Jack McGurn, who, if you'll remember, Frank and Pete Gusenberg tried to kill, as well as Frank Rio, one of Capone's bodyguards. They actually charge McGurn and Scalise in connection with the massacre, but then Capone kills John Scalise and Albert Anselmi, as well as another man, Joseph Hoptoad Guinta. Ooh. Hop-toed. It's it's one of those... That's a good one. Like, Jack McGurn was also Jack Machine Gun McGurn. That one's dumb. Hop-toed's cooler. Fair. It is relevant, I will say, I considering. Mean, yeah, it makes sense, but Hop-toed is cool. Anyway, um, so he kills them that May because he finds out that they're actually planning to kill him. So Scalise escapes his charges by dying, and McGurn escapes them too, although differently they don't actually have enough evidence to indict him. His girlfriend, Louise Rolfe, says he was with her at the time of the massacre. They do charge him with violating the Mann Act, which made it illegal to transport women or girls across state lines for quote-unquote immoral purpose, including prostitution, human trafficking, statutory rape. It was too broad, though, and in Prohibition times, it was often applied to bullshit like 
sex between consenting adults who just weren't married or were different races, etc, etc. In this case, the two were consenting adults, she was 22 or 23 at the time and he was 27, but he was technically still married to another woman when they went on a trip together, and the cops were looking for any excuse to put him away. Which like, dude wasn't a good person, he did some messed up stuff, but like, that would set a really bad precedent. They even got married before the trial. Like, it's a stupid reason to arrest someone who's probably a murderer. Anyways, McGurn dies on February 15th, uh, 1936, assassinated by three men with pistols in a bowling alley in Chicago. They leave a valentine near his body. No one is sure who killed him though. It could have been Bugs Moran, out for revenge, or someone from the Southside gang, because he had become kind of a liability due to his penchant for heavy drinking and his tendency to brag. But my favorite theory is that James Gusenberg was behind it, the other brother of Frank and Peter Gusenberg, who Jack McGurn may have had a hand in killing seven years earlier. Basically, leaving a valentine by his body to me is kind of like, even if he didn't do it, a lot of people apparently thought he did. Especially because it's the day after the anniversary, you know? Yeah. But of course, there are other suspects in the St. Valentine's Massacre. So now we're going to circle back to Fred Burke, because on December 14th, 1929, police in Michigan raided a bungalow supposedly belonging to, quote, Frederick Dane, the non-existent registered owner of the car that Fred Burke drove. After he got in trouble for drunk driving in a hit and run, Officer Christopher Skelly arrived on the scene, and Burke killed him and took off. Police later found the car, checked the registry, and raided the bungalow. So when they raided the bungalow, they found a ton of incriminating stuff. A bulletproof vest, about 300,000 in stolen bonds, two Thompson submachine guns, pistols, two shotguns, and a bunch of ammunition. They sent the Thompson submachine guns to Chicago, where they used ballistics, a relatively new science at the time, to match one of the guns to both the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the murder of Frankie Yale in Brooklyn earlier that year. He winds up not going to prison for either of those, though, as there isn't quite enough evidence, but he does go to prison for the murder of Officer Skelly, once they track him down and then he dies in prison of a heart attack. I just want to point out, these people are very quick to be like, hey, no, we don't have enough evidence, we can't get you in trouble. But like, if they see a black person with weed once, they're like, you're a criminal, you're going to jail automatically, with like, the smallest amount of evidence possible. Oh yeah, for sure. Capone may or may not have kind of owned the police at the time, or at least some of them. And then, of course, the Northside gang owned some of the police, too, so... Mafia, mobsters, they all had really good lawyers. Well, yeah, they could afford them. Exactly. So, not to justify what the police are doing in this case or any of the other cases in Chicago, especially at the time, but it was easier to convict somebody who was not affiliated with the mob or the mafia in any way. But if you were, you had real, real good lawyers on retainer. Like, I mean, part of the reason that the men cooperated with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in the first place is because they thought they were police, and they basically figured, yeah, my lawyer will have me back out on the streets in like two hours. They're notoriously slippery, and witnesses have a tendency to disappear, etc., etc. Which doesn't justify anything, but it's hard to get a conviction. Then, Byron Bolton, who's another, like, mafia, mobster, whatever, gets arrested by the FBI following a shootout and he confesses to being a part of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, alongside Fred Goetz, Goetz? Not sure how to pronounce that, uh, Fred Burke and others, and claims that the massacre was actually planned as a hit on Bugs Moran, way back in October 1928, at a resort owned by Fred Goetz. 
Supposedly, there were a lot of folks at that meeting. Goetz, Al Capone, Frank Needy, Fred Burke, Gus Winkler, Louis Campania, uh, Daniel Saratella, William Pacelli, and of course, Byron Bolton. So Bolton actually goes into a lot of detail about the plan. He and Jimmy Moran, no relation to Bugs Moran, were to watch the garage and let the others who were waiting at the Circus Cafe know when Bugs Moran arrived. He claims that there were six other men involved, two to drive the getaway cars and four to do the shooting, and if he had to guess, it was probably Burke, Winkler, and Goetz, as well as Bob Carey, Raymond Nugent, and Claude Maddox. So that's it. Case solved. Except he's not a reliable narrator by any means. He says there were two cars and no one was dressed up as a cop. This obviously goes against multiple other witnesses. Not to mention, Fred Burke also has an alibi, sort of. He was supposedly robbing banks in another city with Harvey Bailey at the time, and if the whole thing was a plot to kill Bugs Moran, and his only job was to signal when Bugs Moran got there, he obviously did a real shit job of it because Bugs Moran wasn't there yet. Another theory, suggested by Alabama Senator J. Thomas Geflin, is that Benito Mussolini, fascist Italian dictator, was behind it. So, Mussolini was obviously a terrible dude, but among other things, he hated the Mafia and had over 11,000 people arrested and convicted for either being in the Mafia or having Mafia connections. The vast majority of them were innocent. He also, like, slaughtered tons of people for the same reason. The vast majority of these people were innocent, though, but because of this, a lot of the people who were actually in the Mafia fled to the United States. The theory, which I do not put much stock into, is that Mussolini ordered the hit. Except, like, if you hate the Mafia, and you're ordering a hit in Chicago, you'd go after Capone, wouldn't you? You would think that would make more sense. Like, to my knowledge, Bugs Moran is not Italian. Not affiliated with the Mafia. He's in the mob. It's a little bit different. So, like... I don't really get this theory, I don't really like this theory, but it is a good indicator of just how wild the speculation gets that this dude down in Alabama is like, yeah, it was Mussolini. Anyway, um, Bugs Moran was also a suspect. It wasn't uncommon for gang leaders to have their own people killed, like I mentioned earlier, Capone did that. Basically, if they suspected them of trying to usurp them or plot against them. I haven't really found any proof towards this that like any of that was going on but you can never officially rule out the guy in charge of the gang when someone from the gang gets killed you know yeah finally there's one more theory i want to discuss some folks have theorized that the police did it there's a few reasons for this first obviously whoever did it two of them were dressed pretty convincingly as police and driving what appeared to be a police car the cops also took kind of a while to respond more importantly, Fred D. Silloway, Deputy Prohibition Administrator, publicly suggested that the police were responsible for it, and he's promptly transferred to a different Prohibition office in a different city. So, like, that's suspicious. <laughs> if he's completely wrong, why don't you just say that and move along? Like, why does he have to transfer departments? I don't know. It's because the police did it. I mean... It's a valid theory, but let's talk motive. There's speculation that it could have been revenge for the death of a sergeant's son, but I wasn't able to find any primary sources to confirm that, so take that with a grain of salt. The only incidents I could find of a sergeant's son being killed around the time, he was probably killed by Jack McGurn or someone on Capone's side of things, so like, why would you go after Bugs Moran's gang for that? Could have been a different guy and I just can't seem to find the primary source on it, I don't know. 
I've only seen that referenced by a few of the less reliable sources I consulted, so grain of salt on that one. But there could be other motives. Maybe Capone paid them to do it, it wouldn't be the first time the police took a bribe, and this Chicago Police Department was notoriously corrupt at the time. Like, just ridiculous. Or maybe they were just sick of the out-of-control gang issue and Bugs was supposed to be there, so why not take out the leader of the Northside gang and frame the leader of the Southside gang for it? Moral of the story, there were about a half a dozen theories and even more suspects. It's technically unsolved, and it probably always will be. My best guess is that Al Capone ordered the hit and his men carried it out, but we may never know for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fables Agreed Upon, a historical true crime podcast. If you like this episode, you can find more on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or most anywhere else you listen to podcasts, or on our website, which I'll link to in the show notes. Please leave a rating if you feel so inclined. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our username is at FAUpod. That's F as in Francis, A as in Alan, and U as in you, our dear listeners. Our intro music for this episode was Six Cold Feet in the Ground, performed by Leroy Carr in Chicago, 1935, and taken from openmusicarchive.org. Our outro music, which you'll hear in a moment, is Little Bits, performed in 1929 by the Johnny Dodge Trio. We'll see you next week, listeners. Happy Valentine's Day!